a lot of things that were happening in the church, and he was encouraging them. Uh, sometimes letters written by Paul aren't always encouraging to us. Sometimes they are uh, correcting us or instructing us about uh, wrong behavior, wrong attitudes, wrong ideas. In the first letter, Paul wrote to this church in Thessalonica about encouraging them and, and hearing about their success as a church. And he heard that from Timothy. He had sent Timothy there uh, a few years earlier, and Timothy came back and gave a report of the church, how they were strong. And remember, we talked about them having faith, hope, and love. This was a great church. And then word got back to Paul a little while later that the church still had some questions and some concerns, and they were not clear on a particular topic, and that being, when was Christ coming back? They had the idea that why do we need to do all of this church work if Jesus is coming back soon? Why don't we just enjoy life together and then he comes back and takes us home? And so Paul had to write another letter to correct that viewpoint. And so that's what we're going to look at uh, these next three Sundays is uh, each chapter of Second Thessalonians. And today we're going to look at Paul correcting that view of Jesus returning. He said there had to be some things happen before Christ came back. And one of them being a turning away from faith of mankind away from God. And so let's stand together and, and let's read a few verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I call this the title that you see on the screen, I hope it doesn't scare anybody off. It's not scientific, it's not deep theologically, an admonishing exhortation. It just means a warning and an encouragement. That's what those words mean. Verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Let's stop there and pray. Father, bless your word for us today. And Lord, teach us about life. And today, Lord, take this 2,000-year-old letter and apply it to me today. And help us to do that and understand and see what you expect and desire from us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Paul wrote that first letter about 50 A.D., 50, 51 A.D. This letter came shortly after that. He wrote the second letter to help explain the first letter. I hope that you uh, can relate to that. Sometimes things need explanation. And certainly uh, Paul was not uh, cowardly in writing another letter to explain what he meant in the first letter. 
Now, in the first letter, as I said, we talked about faith, hope, and love. That's the three things that church possessed. You'll notice in this letter, he leaves one of those out. In the first letter, he introduced it with a standard greeting that was known in that day. It would be like you and I writing a letter to someone and we would say, Dear so-and-so. That's a standard introduction to us writing a letter. Well, Paul begins with a standard introduction of his day and time. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he began the first letter. But now in this second letter he emphasizes God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. Why does he say that twice? Why does he repeat that? Because he wants them to know that in the face of the difficulties they are observing and enduring, their source of strength is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? For you today, you might be in a bit of a twist. You might be in trouble. You might have uh, overwhelming oppression in your life. You might be struggling with finances. You might have lost your job. Who knows what difficulties you are facing I want to emphasize to you that the source of strength for you to endure all of that is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says it twice in the letter to emphasize that. Now we go to verse 3 and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you. Why is he saying that? Because somebody got wind to Paul that his first letter was too... uh, His first letter was too joyous and too informative and too great for a church to be receiving. In other words, Paul was bragging on them. And that church was full of problems. And Paul just said, listen, I've heard about this church. I helped begin this church. I want to encourage this church. So I ought to always give thanks to God for them. And that's what he emphasizes there in verse 3. For you, brethren. Now, why is he doing that? Because, in verse 3, your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Love and faith. By the way, those are marks of a healthy church. If you're looking for a church and you find love in it and you find faith in it, then hang with it. It's a good church. Amen. But as I said a minute ago, he left one out. Hope. And why did he leave that out? Because they had an unclear vision of the return of Jesus. And that's what he wants to teach us today in this service. Is what vision do you have of Christ returning? And Paul uses several letters to lay out that return in succession so that you and I could understand it, so that we could understand it. And that's what I hope to do today, is give you maybe a little bit of a timeline of that event of the return of Jesus Christ. Why is that important? Because if I don't have a clear understanding of what I'm hoping for, then it will begin to affect the love and the faith that I possess. And that is, history proves that in the church. Without a clear vision of the future, then our present day living is affected by that. And we suffer because of it. 
because I really don't understand what's coming. I don't understand what's put forth by the Lord for me to see. And so it affects the way I live today. And I hope this morning that we can all have a clear vision of the return of Christ um, so that we can live a correct life today. So he wrote this letter to help them see a clear vision of Christ. That's why he left out hope, all right? Now, let's move on past that introduction, and let's go into verse 5 and 7, 5, 6, and 7. This section gives us encouragement, and it gives us warning. Let's read that together. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to use, I'm sorry, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. So, what he's saying is this I understand you are being afflicted. I understand you're under persecution. I understand it's difficult to live the Christian life in front of a society that is not Christian, that is going the opposite direction, that the God of this world is in charge of, uh, that would be Satan. And so Paul writes to them and he says, I understand now I want to admonish you, I want to warn you, but I also want to encourage you at the same time. And that's what he's going to try to do. Now, these troubles that he talks about with them undergoing affliction and persecution, he doesn't list those like he does in other places. But let's just speculate for a minute. If you're a Christian living in an ungodly city, what could be some persecutions that you might be uh, enduring? One of them might be being beaten, or one of them might be arrested or put into jail or having your possessions confiscated, or your house burned, or even being put to death. There's all kinds of persecutions that Christians have endured for hundreds of years. Just because he doesn't list them doesn't mean that they're not uh, powerful in the lives of these people, the suffering that they're enduring. Perhaps their citizenship's being revoked or they're being fined or taxed because of their Christian beliefs. So what Paul is telling us is to be encouraged about something. As you endure these troubles, it's proof that you are in the kingdom of God. You don't endure persecution without the Holy Spirit filling you. We see that today in people coming to church, going through a religious experience of coming forward, saying a prayer with the preacher, perhaps even getting baptized, and then a month or two later, they're out that door never to come back. What's happened to that person? They've had an experience with God, but the Holy Spirit has not resided in that heart. And therefore, when persecution arises... They go the other direction. But these Thessalonians were enduring the persecution. They weren't running away. They weren't giving up. They were standing firm. And therefore, Paul says, this is 
evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. And this is evidence that God is in charge and you are in His kingdom. Look at that again. Let's start in verse 4 and read 5. Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. God uses these sufferings to show us as we stand firm that we are His people. Do we like going through persecution? Of course not. Would we rather avoid it? Of course we would. But when it comes our way and it drives us to a place where I either have to endure it or denounce my faith, the Christian will always endure. Okay? The Christian will endure because he has the Spirit of God living in him to strengthen him, to help him, to endure. How do you think these 12 disciples ended up giving their life for what they believed? How do you think Christian martyrs around the world today go to their own death because of what they believe? They are enduring because the Spirit of God is in them. How easy would it be to say, okay, I don't believe it. And they take the knife from your neck. Or they let go of the chains that are bound to you. Or they release your family because you've denounced what you believe in Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be easier to do that and then say, I go on believing in Him? when you've really denounced Him before men? How do you think people go to their death? It's because the Spirit of God is in them and they endure that, proving that they are God's children. And that's what Paul is writing to this church. You can't do it unless the Spirit of God is in you. The same for us today, with people coming and going out the door. Two things I want you to see about suffering. Number one's on the screen. God uses suffering to prepare us for the kingdom of God. He's revealing through our persecution and enduring it that we are worthy of the kingdom of God. Not deserving, so to speak. You don't get points by going through persecution. You don't get up a ladder of some kind in heaven because you've been persecuted more than others. It's just simply showing that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And now you are considered or you are revealed, it would be a better word to say there, that you are in the kingdom of God because you are enduring the suffering and the pain and the mocking and the jokes and the ridicule and the laughing and the talking behind your back. You endure all of those things because the Spirit of God is in you and you're showing that you are His. Today, young people, you hold out against sin. You, older people, you hold out against falling into sin. That is showing that the Spirit of God is in you. And that is evidence that God is working in you. When you don't do what the world does. When you are tempted to have sexual promiscuity and you don't do it. That's showing that God is in you. 
when you're tempted to, to take drugs and to take alcohol and to abuse those, but you don't do it, that's showing that God is in you. Amen? That's what Paul is saying here. You are considered, you are revealed as being in the kingdom of God when you say no to the sin of the world. But when you fall prey in it and you roll around in it and you rejoice in it and you brag in it, then you better beware because you're not revealing anything but sin. You're not revealing the kingdom of God. You're not revealing the salvation of Christ. Just beware. God uses suffering to prepare us for living in the kingdom of God. We will be persecuted as Christian people. The second thing I want you to see is God uses this suffering as evidence against the world. Look in verse 6. He says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's easy to understand. We can say, God, when are you going to... uh, justify us when are you going to vindicate us and God keeps saying wait don't take vengeance yourself I am the Lord I will take vengeance there's coming a day my friend when God's going to even the score all the people that have talked about you and hurt you and laughed at you and mocked you and persecuted you and slayed you and imprisoned you God one day will even the score. That's what he's saying. I'm going to afflict those who have afflicted you. Amen. Now we think it should be immediate, but God is patient and he wants those people to have a chance to be saved just like he wanted you to be saved. And as a Christian, you have to understand and agree with that. Now, we have a book in the Bible, Hebrews, in the 11th chapter, we have a record of the people of faith of God. And and at the end of that, it mentions another group of people, not by name, but it does mention them. Look on the screen with me. It says, and others experienced mocking and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Did you hear that? These people of faith that were suffering and still suffering today, this world is not worthy of them. Amen? They are above this world. You can be that. You are that if you are a Christian and you endure the suffering. You know, here in America, we don't even begin to touch persecution. I typed in persecution so I could find some pictures about it to maybe put up on the screen. And you know, I I found all kinds of religious persecution taking place in our world today. These were modern photographs of men beating men in the street because of their Christian faith, because of their Christian belief. And I thought, my gosh, I can't even begin to touch that. 
to be beaten for Christ. You know, when Peter and John were arrested and they, they went into a prison and they were beaten and then they were released, you know what they did? They went out in the street dancing because they were found worthy to receive stripes for Jesus. Wow, that's backwards for us. We would rather avoid the stripes and these men were looking for them so that they could show that they were God's men. Think about that. God uses persecution today. We would rather hide from it. We would rather keep our mouth shut. I would rather them not know I'm a Christian for them to talk about me or make fun of me or make off-color jokes about me because I'm a believer in Christ. You better get away from that thinking, that mindset. Don't be ashamed of who you are. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian. When you're persecuted, then you are revealed as a child of the King. Take that persecution and relish it. You don't have to enjoy it, but you must understand it's proof that you are His and that you are in the kingdom. And God says, one day I will use that same tactic against those people. They afflict you, I, God says, will afflict them. Ooh, what a day that will be, my friend, for those men and women. God does not forget. He will afflict the afflictors. And then it says He will also give us relief. That word relief there in, in verse 7, and give relief, your Bible might say rest. The Greek word is anison. How many of you used to have a headache and you would take uh, some anison? Remember that? You want to get relief? Take some anison. That's where that word came from in the Greek. It means relief. And we know that you don't get real relief from anison or rollades. You get real relief from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he said he will do one day with his people. Now we are persecuted. Now we're talked about. And you know it, and I know it, it's coming here in America. It's beginning to ramp up. It's, it's, uh, it's, under, the, it's under the carpet. It's in the darkness of the closet. Somebody's going to open that door and persecution to the church in America is going to come out. And I, I will guarantee you that the majority of our nation will be the ones persecuting the minority of our nation, the true Christian. And when that happens, you're going to watch churches empty. You're going to watch them empty out. Why? Because persecution either drives you to God or away from God. And it's easier to go away and avoid the persecution than it is to go to Him and endure more persecution. So when it happens, don't be surprised when churches start emptying because people are running from persecution instead of running to God. And I just want you to hear that and understand that's what's taking place. God will give relief when that happens to His people one day. There is a memorial in Jerusalem. I don't know if Charlie went to this or not, but it's a a memorial to the children of the Holocaust. And when you walk in the room, it's like uh, if it's in daytime, you go in and it's very dark in this room. And there are a few candles burning. The majority of the room are mirrors. So when you walk in, it looks like there are thousands of candles burning when really there are only a few. But as you walk in and you see these pictures, 
hanging from the ceiling in different areas. You walk in, it's very quiet, and it's, you're expected to be quiet. And in the darkness, in the background, in, you hear hidden voices of people calling out the names of Jewish children that were killed during the Holocaust. And that's all that takes place in this building. It's something that you kind of just go in, you hang out for a minute, and you go out. But it is a place for us to remember that God does not forget. One day, Hitler will get his comeuppance. Amen? One day, Stalin will get his comeuppance. One day, all of these evil men in this world will get what's coming to them. God does not forget. Amen? And that's what Paul is writing to us in helping us to understand that for now we endure persecution, but there's coming a day when we will get relief. There's coming a day when we will have rest from all of this. When will this happen? It tells us in verse 7. Let's look at that again. When will all this take place? And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his angels in flaming fire. Now, I don't understand the flaming fire thing. I can visualize it a bit, but I don't know how that relates to the return of Christ unless it relates to the judgment that's coming with him. He comes, remember, the second time to judge the world. Now, in the first letter of Thessalonians, we read about the Lord descending with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are raised first, and we who are remaining and alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds, right? We call that the rapture. So this presentation of Christ to the world is not just a single day event, it begins with the Lord coming and taking His treasure from the earth. It begins with Him coming and removing the bride, His church, His people. Amen? That's what it begins with. And then somehow Christ is here behind the scenes, so to speak, directing the tribulation period of seven years. And at the end of that seven years, then he manifests himself standing on the earth again in Jerusalem, revealing himself as the Son of God, Messiah, Savior and Judge of the world. And we read about that in Thessalonians, in Revelation, we read about it in Matthew. At that time, at the end of the tribulation, when he reveals himself, right, we're already gone as the church. We're in the background of all of this somehow, some way. I don't know, but that's what it teaches us. But at this revelation of him, at the end of the tribulation, he separates the sheep from the goats. Those who are saved during the tribulation will be the sheep. Those who are lost will be the goats. And he separates them. He judges the world. He establishes his kingdom. And it's for a thousand years. 
And so that's the outline that Paul is wanting to teach these Thessalonians. There has to be some things happening before he comes. So you cannot get Christ and sit in the pew waiting for him to come and get you. There's work to be done. There's lost men and women to be witnessed to. There's people that are hurting and need help and assistance and encouragement and life and love and forgiveness. Church, that's what we do while we remain waiting for Him to come. And we do this by His instruction. And while we're doing it, we're persecuted for it. Doesn't make sense, does it? That people living good and holy and wholesome lives would be persecuted. But that tells you where the world is headed. It's spiraling down out of control. It is winding up in hell and it's on its way now. But you and I have been rescued from that. The Lord came and rescued us from that. That demise, that end And now he asked that we get that message out to someone else. I'll promise you, you weren't saved because you wanted to be saved. You were saved because God wanted you to be saved. And you were saved because somebody came and told you about the message. Somebody shared the message with you. It might have been on the radio. It might have been on the TV. It might have been a next door neighbor. It might have been the preacher across the street. But somebody came and told you about Jesus. And the Spirit of God began to work in you and convict you of your sin. And you realized that you were in that spiraling down to hell, life. And God was knocking on the door of your heart because He wanted, to op- he wanted you to open it so He could rescue you. Amen? That's what He does. Now, why didn't He just take us home At that moment, it had been so much easier. We have so much better plans than God, don't we? That he would just take us home. But you know what he said? No, I need somebody left behind to tell somebody else. I need somebody in your neighborhood to tell your next door neighbor who needs to be saved and rescued. I need you to do that. In church, that's what we're to be doing. That's why he left us here. That's the purpose of all of this, to help us see that. When is this happening? When we get relief? When will we finally get to rest? When Christ comes back. Amen. It tells us right here in verse 7, when he appears in flaming fire with all of his angels. Now, all of this began, as I said, with the rapture uh, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Christ is in the scenes working out the tribulation and revealing himself at the end time, the sheep and the goats, and all of this happens for a purpose. What is that purpose? Look in verse 8. It says, let me go back to 7 to make it more clear. It says, And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Two groups of people there that are going to get retribution from God when He comes back. 
One is a group that does not know Him. Well, that's not very fair, preacher, that God would give retribution and judgment to people that don't know Him. Have you ever been asked that question, Christian? How can God hold somebody accountable when they've never heard the message? Anybody ever been asked that question? How can God judge somebody who's never heard about Jesus Christ? That's a good question, isn't it? Well, we got the answer for you. It's in the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, it says there that God has revealed Himself to all men through what He has made. When you look at your own body, you've got to understand that you didn't put this together. That there wasn't a scientist working in a laboratory that put this together. It had to come from somebody. It's too marvelous not to have been created by someone. And God says, "Uh, ding, that was me. I made you. I made this. I made that. Every force, everything, every item, every movement, everything on this world comes from Him. Every thought, every good gift is from our Father above. God did all of this. He has revealed to that man in the dark jungles of Africa, God has revealed Himself to that man by what He has made by the universe that that man looks at every night, by the rising and the setting of the sun every single day, that man can know that there is a creator God. He knows that. He can reject it or he can accept it. And believe me, that's why God sends missionaries across the world because there's men just like that man in Africa who understands there is a creator God, God's going to get him the message. Amen? God's going to get it to him. He'll get the gospel to that man. That's how God works. There's thousands of missionaries across the world telling people about the God that they don't know about, but they believe in. That's who God is. He's revealed himself to all of mankind. So when it says he's dealing out retribution to those who don't know God, they had a chance to know him, but they rejected it. Guess what? There are not, you don't have to go to deep, dark Africa to uh, not know God. You can live right here in Aaron Springs across the street from this church and not know God. You can live up and down Highway 76 all the way to the Banquette Highway and not know God. Amen? You, you see him in what he's made, but you can still reject him just like that man in Africa. So as God begins to work on people's hearts and life, they begin to awaken to spiritual things and God gets them the message. The second group, as I said, are those who disobey God, it says in verse 8. Those who disobey the gospel of God. Now these are people who have heard the gospel message, but they walk away from it. I don't want God in my life. I don't want Him in charge of what I do. I don't want Him to be in control of me. Perhaps you are one of those today. You believe there is a God, but you really don't want Him in charge of your life. You don't want Him making the decisions. Then go ahead and stand on your own, my friend. And when you die in this body and you face that God that you rejected in judgment... You're going to be on your own. 
You see, what a Christian does is when he dies in the body, he goes before God, but Jesus has got his arm around him, and he says to the Father, this one's with me. I died for him, and he received it. And God says, enter into the joy of your master. But when you stand there on your own, and Jesus is over here, and you say, well, there's Jesus, come on. And he said, depart from me. I, I didn't know who you are. I don't know you. I don't know you. I tried to reach you. I, I tried to get your attention. I tried to share the gospel with you. Remember that old preacher at Aaron Springs? He tried to talk to you about God, and you just shoved it away and pushed it aside. Well, now you're going to stand in judgment on your own. And then you won't hear, welcome in. You will hear, depart into everlasting darkness. You see, that's what we want to avoid. That's what Paul is saying today. There is a warning that goes with this encouragement. There are some that need to be warned. There are some that need to be encouraged. And I hope that you might make that decision today to be saved and come to Jesus even right now in this building because He loves you and He's given Himself for you. He proved how much He loved you on that cross. Now, He says in verse 9, He's dealing out retribution to those who are, don't know Him and to those who don't obey the gospel. Verse 9, And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Eternal destruction. You know, it doesn't say eternal annihilation. To be destroyed doesn't mean that it ceased to exist. It just means it's wrecked. It's, it, it, it's wiped out. To be annihilated means that it ceased to exist. And here the Bible is clear. When you are judged to eternal destruction, you don't cease to exist. You simply spend eternity away from everything that is good, holy, just, and right. That is what it's talking about in verse 9. For those who reject God and His way, then God will send them to a place away from His presence. There's no hope, there's no good, there's no righteousness, there's no glory, there's no clean, there's no light, there's nothing. You know, a lot of times people make jokes about hell. I'm going to tell you right now, it's nothing to joke about. People say, oh, I'm going to go down there and party with all my buddies in hell all, for all eternity. I want you to know the Scriptures give no indication of that. The Scriptures give an indication that it is a place of total darkness, total emptiness, total loneliness, and total separation from God for eternity. Let me give you a little uh, transcript from a preacher that preached a message in Chicago not too long ago. He said this, One writer of the Bible calls hell the bottomless pit. And that conjures up dreamlike feelings of falling away, falling, falling, falling. You've all had dreams like that where you wake up and your heart's beating because you're falling. Picture in your mind hanging over a precipice and God is hanging on to you and you are hanging on to Him and you decide you don't need Him anymore, so you let go. But the moment you let go, you know you made a mistake. You're falling. 
And every moment you fall further and further away from the only source of help and love and truth. And you realize you made a mistake and you cannot get back up and you will fall further and faster and further and faster into spiritual oblivion. And you know you're going the wrong direction and you'd give anything to go back, but you can't. And you fall and you fall and you fall and you fall. How long do you fall? Forever, it says. And all the while you're falling, you're saying, I'm further now. I'm further. I'm further from the only one who could help me and love me and give me hope. In hell, there is never the bliss of annihilation. You'd give anything for annihilation, but it's unavailable. The only conscious thing that you'll have in hell is the emotional anguish, the physical anguish, the relational anguish, and the spiritual anguish as you fall forever farther from God. Wow. What does a man have to do to deserve that? You know what the Bible says? All he has to do is turn his back from the offer that God is giving him. That's all he's got to do. He doesn't even have to be a Hitler, a murderer, a child abuser. He can be the greatest guy you've ever known, the kindest man you've ever seen, the most generous person that you've run across. He can be all of that, but if he turns his back on the offer that God is giving him of being rescued, then he'll experience those words that preacher shared not too long ago. That's all he has to do. That's what Peter, I'm sorry, that's what Paul is trying to tell us today. Now, I want you to think about something. This offer of grace that God is giving and this destruction that God is warning about. There's two great truths that emerge from this, and, and here they are. One of them is this. If I can get it up there on the screen. God's justice is being carried out, not meanness. When God judges the world, He's doing it for justice's sake, not meanness. It's like somebody going to trial for murder, murdering your child. And the judge says, okay, he's going to be convicted and executed. And you feel like you've gotten some justice. But then in the background, a deal is made with the judge and this man's released. Was justice served? No. Court said it was, but in the background, another deal was made, and the man is set free. You see, that's not who God is. God is just, and He will punish sin. There's coming a day when He will deal with sin, and He will afflict those who afflict us, and give us rest. And so God's dealing with judgment is not mean. It is fair. Amen? These people get what they deserve. They rejected the offer of God to be saved, 
to be rescued. The second thing I want you to see, it is a self-inflicted judgment. It is, a, it is something that they have done themselves. It is self-chosen. God doesn't force anyone into hell, and God doesn't force anyone into heaven. It's something that He offers, and you have to take it. Have you done that? Have you taken that gift that He's giving I'm telling you right now, it's the greatest life you could ever imagine. I lived 34 years on the other side of Christianity. I experienced all this world had to offer. And when I came to Christ at 34 years old, I experienced life and love for the first time in my life. It is what these people who are involved in this judgment, it's what they really want. They want freedom from God. In judgment, they're going to get freedom from God. God is not in that hell, and He will give them what they're looking for. But there's another result, and look at that in verse 10. Among those who believe, He says, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Uh, I want you to notice the phrase there in the first of verse 10. When He comes to be glorified in His saints. What does that mean? Not glorified by His saints, Glorified in His saints. When Christ comes and all of His people are there at the establishment of His kingdom, He will receive the glory that He deserves by the life that you have lived. Understand that. He's glorified in His people. Not by them. It's, it, Christ gets all the glory, understand me. You don't receive glory. Christ gets all the glory, but part of that glory is what He has done to His people. For the first time in the eyes of the world, what God has been doing in you is going to be revealed. Do you understand that? Things you cannot see within yourself, the world sees it, but you can't see it. But one day, that life that you are living... When Christ comes, He will receive the glory from the life that you've lived for Him. Think about that. Think about what that means. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. That's what He's talking about, my friend. He says here, when the curtain is lifted and the world will finally see what God has done in the lives of His people how He has changed them on the inside, how He has conformed them into the image of His Son. There is a glory and a joy that only the redeemed of God can know. Not even the angels can express that glory. We used to sing an old hymn, it says this, Holy, holy, holy is what the angels sing. And I expect to help them make the courts of heaven ring. But when we sing redemption's story, they must fold their wings, for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Is God getting future glory from you 
right now. The life you're living is multiplying and increasing that glory for that day. What glory will he gain from you? That's what Paul is asking us. What glory will God get when you are revealed as His in the kingdom of God? In the last section, verses 11 and 12, Paul prays for you and I. Let's read that. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. In order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, church, you have the ability to do that. It's been given to you by the Spirit of God to bring glory to Jesus right now. You have the faith to do that based upon the facts of Scripture. You have the power to do that since God Himself dwells within you. It might be hard to stand against this world, but it can be done. It may be difficult, but you can prevail. It is not easy to be loving to those who are cruel and caustic. But this can be a ruthless world, the Bible tells me so. But remember, the Lord Jesus is being glorified when you hold steady, when you don't give in to the face of persecution, when you are being changed in the inside, the things you cannot see but others see them in you. One day, my brothers, we will see Him face to face. Will the life that we are living now bring glory to my Lord on that day? Paul says it can. I pray that you're doing that. I pray if you're not, you'll change it right here in this place. And you'll walk out these doors with a new step and a new beat because you've made a commitment a recommitment to your Lord today to bring Him glory in everything you do. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your return one day. And I know, Lord, that it's going to be a beautiful day and a beautiful time. And I pray, Lord, that our lives here at Aaron Springs would bring glory to You in that moment. I pray that we live that and we think about it. And Lord, that it helps us to turn away from sin if we think about our future. You've given us a clear vision of what we can expect in the future. Lord, help us to live towards that vision with love and faith today and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.